0: ladies and gentlemen this first kickoff segment is going to be on a presentation i've seen called spiritual bypassing john's going to be using some slides and walking us through this and uh, just uh, sit back and enjoy i think there will be an opportunity to jump in and share uh, later in the presentation take it away john
1: well thanks joe for the nice introduction and i'm happy to be here i am john runyon i'm an average alcoholic and I'm happy to be dealt in for another hand today. Um, I have done this presentation before, but of course it's going to be a little different. But you know that's how it, life is, right? So first off, I want to tell you a little bit of my of my story, how it relates to spiritual bypassing, um, and and I want to say as I did before when I've given this that I don't mean to imply that these paths that I've been on were inherently causal. <laughs> for my spiritual bypassing, I, I don't think it's necessarily true. And I know that some people do have a problem with the term spiritual. I really don't. As Ward Ewing said in his books, which I kind of like his book, by the way, I think of spiritual as meaning anything that you can't see or touch that affects you. Um, and uh, I, I really like that definition. Of course in the context of spiritual bypassing it probably does imply more of a religious meaning rather than a secular one but bypassing is still possible from a secular point of view because bypassing might be thought of as a way of living life in the abstract rather than in the gut and, and, and as a whole human person but let let me um let me just uh tell you that from from my standpoint, what spiritual bypassing is, is it's a defense mechanism that I used. That's how it was in me. Uh, It's a it was an avoidance technique, it was a coping mechanism. Really, what it did, I think, was assuage some of the underlying pain and trauma of my life. And I don't necessarily know that that's that's true of everyone but it was certainly true in my case. So this is only a little sketch of my journey. I mean, my journey has been several years. I got sober in April, on April Fool's Day, as a matter of fact, of 1981. And it wasn't just before I got sober that this applied. It still continues, even as a non-theist, I still have to be careful of the thinking. But when I was a kid, I used to kind of just wander around the fields of Thousand Oaks and really enjoyed being alone. I liked being in nature. Um, I liked those quiet walks. And of course, those of you who know Thousand Oaks today, it was very different in the 50s when I was a kid. You could wander for hours and never be disturbed by traffic or houses or people. But my earliest memories are was of the feeling that I, I really wasn't a part of any the kids that were around, of my, or the adults, certainly, or even my own family, I was the fifth child of six kids. And um, I also had these um, so-called mystical or spiritual experiences when I was a kid. I made the mistake once of telling a girlfriend about it, and her mother told her, never to see me again, (laughs) because I was crazy. Um, I stopped telling people about those mystical experiences. (laughs) Anyway um from the earliest years i always felt that there was something wrong with me anyway i mean i wasn't enough i just didn't measure up i didn't belong i really only felt okay some of the time when i was alone and you know even when i got sick when i was a kid i would go off to my room and be alone i didn't want to have anybody caretaking me or anything so you know i learned most of my great life techniques, which some people call character defects and some people call fence mechanisms. I learned those my formative years. I mean I learned that if I wanted to be heard, I needed to get angry. And I used my intelligence and my language to try and win. You know I was a victim of sexual abuse and physical abuse. And and in my family, I would consider some of it emotional and, and mental abuse as well. Trace a lot of the underlying conflicts and patterns of my perceptions and my reactions to life um, as a sort of a lack of attachment to a, any caregiver and because of the abuse uh, that I suffered from a couple of neighbors in my earliest years. A, a lot of the pain that underlie those experiences were. Was a significant factor in my learning to use spiritual methods, so called, to avoid that pain. But it, you know, it kept bubbling up beneath the surface. I wasn't aware of it for many, many years. My family wasn't religious. Um, I do remember seeking out a lot of different churches and synagogues and try and find answers to life's meaning. You know, how, how do I escape this disconnectedness, this feeling that? That I was the problem, that you know, the problem wasn't me. So by the time I was about eleven, I started acting on stage, and uh, that's coincidentally the time, about the same time I started drinking. Um, but acting really brought me a lot of relief. I think that acting in a way saved my life for a time, because what I really wanted to do was disappear. I just I wanted to get rid of me. I, I wasn't enough. I was a mistake. I was crazy. Well, in acting, I could empty out myself and inhabit a character, and that that really did give me a lot of uh, relief emotionally and mentally. It was okay to express pain and emotion as a character, but oh boy, once the play was over, I got to get out that back door from the theater. So by the time I went to college, uh, it was the 60s, so I discovered psychedelics. And uh, that's a great way to escape into the void and disappear from being me. Except I kept coming back to everyday Earth time. And, of course, I continued my drinking. I was big on carrying around a gallon of wine while I was stoned on mescaline or (laughs) LSD or whatever other psychedelic I chose to take. Anyway, I I sought out all kinds of methods to try and stay there, where you can be in those, uh, you know, meditation, Raja Yoga, esoteric methods, all kinds of things. Uh, By the second year of college, I got approached by a bunch of radical, fanatical Jesus freaks, and they said, drop out, follow Jesus. They lived communally all over the world. They seemed to have a real connection emotionally and with each other and they had shared a belief system. And that was real attractive to me. You know, it, it, maybe that was the solution to my feelings of isolation, of separation. So I dropped out of college and for eight or nine years I became uh evangelical fundamentalist disciple of Jesus and was ordained and and I thought the ministry would save me from the self that was, at least according to their theology and my inner narrative, but that I was intrinsically sinful and worthless. I mean, I memorized the Bible, I preached the word in different communes around the United States, I, I led the communes, we put on shows and you know, all kinds of things. But he, through it all i never really felt real i never really felt authentic it seemed like i couldn't do prayer bible study preaching or anything else sufficiently to overcome my sinful nature my me problems you know I, i was trying to die to self and and you know i was trying to leave the past behind but i never really actually dealt with the past instead i just became more and more dependent on booze and that took me out of that ministry <laughs> and my subsequent substance abuse got worse after that a lot worse i had a wife and four children by then and uh, it pretty much became impossible for her too so um, i abandoned that family and continued that downward spiral into that what i really wanted was to die you know in 1981 uh based on the fact i wasn't going to get the die i made the rash decision to go to a 12-step meeting of AA and check out their theology that was in ventura california in a clubhouse in main street and fortunately at that group they didn't have any theology <laughs> i managed to get sober and um, that was the first time i've been sober in many years um, but even when I got to the program and stayed sober and worked the step, there was still that sense. The idea was that I was supposed to, this is what I thought, I was supposed to rise above everything. You know, I'm supposed to find the mountain of spirituality and my actual consciousness. There's this idea that if I just did that and did it correctly and really worked the steps right and really became spiritual, and then I would become a... Uh, somebody who would rise above all that conflict and walk placidly amid the noise and haste with long flowing robes and be this spiritual giant that was untouched by anything like a real human emotion. <laughs> um, then I'd be lovable and loved and I would be enough. I spent a lot of years in more than one 12-step program. I did CODA and Al-Anon and SLA and the acoa um, and i tried to work the program the best i could in each of them and they actually did help a lot in terms of my behavior and my ability to cope with life and to some extent my inner work but i couldn't shake the sense there was something really wrong with me with my ego with my soul here are some of the here's some of the spiritual things i tried during my years in the program i came in as a christian of course but had trouble with some of the beliefs in the room. It's like things it like that 24 hour a day book. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> my sponsor finally told me, quit <laughs> reading it. I later on in my sobriety, I tried a very painful brand of sexuality, which is beyond the scope of the talk, in an effort to get beyond myself. I got into lots of different kinds of meditation. Um, I seriously started. Studying Buddhism around my seventh year in sobriety, I thought that was going to be a way to overcome myself, you know, or non-self, as the case may be. But essentially, I was just using the same approach with Buddhism and meditation as I had with Christianity and the 12 steps. That same underlying uh, thought that if I do it right, then I'll rise above. I also was adopted into a pretty famous... uh, A a Lakota family by a pretty famous medicine man, and I started to learn ceremonial ways of the red light. But in any case, it all has that same underlying delusion that I haven't really uncovered, that idea that I'm not enough, I'm a defective character, if I can just find a way to eradicate that self, I'll be okay. And if I just worked hard enough, if I just prayed long enough, if I did the right ceremonies the right way, I become what I wasn't, a, you know, free of pain and a truly spiritual man. Some of the key phrases I used uh, kind of support that thinking. As a Christian, I env- emphasized this tendency toward the annihilation of self. I mean, a couple of the verses were, uh, we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousness is filthy rags, uh, or uh, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. These are some typical phrases that one hears uh, in twelve-step programs. Phrases like "the ego has to be smashed" um, or "my best thinking got me here." Uh, those were real attractive to me, my desire to disappear. But I consider them now they're kind of abusive attacks on the self. Uh, I I still hear people use them in meetings, but I I don't much care for them. In Buddhism, I thought of emptiness and no self, but that equated to the sort of nihilistic disappearing act that would save me from pain. So if desires, for instance, cause suffering, then detaching and not feeling or having desires should make me safe. I have since learned more about Buddhist precepts and that that really isn't an accurate representation. It was a painful road to let go of some of those underlying delusions. By the time I was 11 years in, into my sobriety, all those efforts to, to kind of rise above my humanness, you know, um, landed me in the desert of Tucson, Arizona, in a treatment center with about a dozen other double-digit sober people. And why? Well, the psychiatrist who care after doing all these pests and stuff. He said, how long have you been depressed? <laughs> I asked him, I said, is that what it is?" I had no idea. Um, I thought I was just doing something wrong, or I was wrong, or there was something wrong with me. You know how people say, smell the roses." stuff and smell the roses. I couldn't smell the roses. So anyway, I was in that treatment center for, I don't know, 30 days or something. And it was a first step in the, the journey out of that delusion and self annihilation. One of the first fruits was I was able to smell the roses while I was in the treatment center. That was a pretty cool thing. In other words, I guess my efforts were basically about trying to rise above being a human, you know, to disappear, to to gain freedom from myself. What I've learned is it basically was an effort to to, uh, avoid the pain of uncovering a lot of the trauma of my history and I mean, I had worked the steps and several times in several programs, so it wasn't about not working hard enough. Really, it was kind of a psychological suicide delusion. I mean, ultimately, I was I was really placing unreasonable demands upon um, God and meditation and the 12 steps and myself and so-called spirituality to solve the wrong problem. It wasn't the real problem. I remember my sponsor, when I talked about having suicidal thoughts, he said, will you be killing the wrong person? (laughs) Which is really true. So anyway, spiritual bypassing, really my first introduction to the idea of spiritual bypassing was Chögyam Trungpa's book um, about spiritual materialism. And um, Jack Farnfield wrote a book called After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. But one of the best quotes um, that I've ever read on this I read a, a book by a guy by the name of John Wallwood. Let me, let me share that quote with you. If I can do that. He said that what spiritual bypassing is basically is using spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep personal, emotional, unfinished business, um, to shore up a shaky sense of self, to belittle basic needs, feelings, developmental tasks. And that pretty much covers it. I wanted to share this screen, I don't want to go over all of them, but here are some signs of spiritual bypassing, not focusing on the here and now, trying to live in the spiritual realm a lot of the time, being (laughs) self-righteous about enlightenment or salvation or sobriety, I remember in the first decade of my sobriety, I was a great sponsor. I knew exactly what you needed to do and how you needed to do it. and What was wrong? <laughs> I'm not that way anymore. Half the time, I don't know. Most of the time, if you don't tell me what's wrong, I probably won't guess it. Uh, exhibiting frequent anger or rage, I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get rid of this, this raging problem that I had. Cognitive dissonance. the The biggest problem for me was that this stuff was underneath the level of my consciousness I, I i wasn't in touch with that this was what was going on it took me a long time to recognize and realize that the spiritual bypassing really applied to me the biggest problem was the way i defined the problem the underlying assumptions i had about myself you know they they were like the you know you guys know probably what an axiom is you know it's the underlying truth statement when i I had those truth statements about myself and working the steps hadn't gotten to them i have been placing a lot of dependence on those paths Um, my problem was that the delusion caused me to believe that i was the problem and for me it was important to recognize there's a difference between denial and delusion and i think my watch is a really good example of that I just couldn't see the delusion. The way that I define delusion anyway, is that at the very image one has of oneself, like the ego of oneself. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way, by the way, ego. It's a function of our humanness. But it's what underlies my perception. It's the observed inherent in the the way I observe reality. Whereas denial is more a function of a, it's kind of like a willful refusal to acknowledge something that's observably a fact. Or a, at some level it's a it's a, it's a dysfunction of logic. So it's a little bit different, at least the way that I define it. So how did I practice bypassing as a Buddhist? Well, one of the things Jack Cornfield talked about in, in a wonderful book. He says, many have come to a spiritual practice with this problem, what psychologists call a weak sense of self, or a needy ego, the holes in the psyche or the heart. And that's kind of how I think of bypass, spiritual bypassing. It's a way to overcome that. And if we have a deficient sense of self, if we perennially negate ourselves, we may easily confuse our inner poverty with selflessness and believe it to be sanctioned as the road to enlightenment. I've come to think of enlightenment very differently today, Um, having read a lot of the secular Buddhist materials, especially Stephen Batchelor. He talks about nirvana as being, losing that reactivity. That sounds a lot like the program to me. He doesn't use metaphysical terms most of the time when he's talking about Buddhism. So meditation. Kevin Griffin wrote a, a really terrific book one breath at a time, at least in my opinion. And he says, although meditation can be difficult at first, after some practice, it becomes pleasant. It can even become another kind of high. Buddhist texts warn the meditator away from getting attached to the pleasure of meditation. The very structure of the meditative experience can help us to stay in denial about our dysfunction. We can use meditation as a place to hide. And what I was hiding from was myself. So Here's a really cool thing that Ingrid Clayton said. If you've found a way to transcend the human condition, my hat is off to you. Truly, but for the rest of you who continue to wrestle with emotional growing pains, I'm spreading the news about spiritual bypass as a reminder that we are not supposed to rise above it all. We can't outrun our own feet. We can't outthink our brains. We can't override this human operating system that we live and breathe in every hour of every day, freeing ourselves of pain and problems, not perpetually anyway. Ultimately, happiness comes, from, comes down to choosing between the discomfort of becoming aware of your mental afflictions and the discomfort of being ruled by them. And that was really true in my case. One of the things that was true for me, and I think it, for me, it's important to remember, this was not a gentle process. It Was not a process where I oh I realized it and boom all of a sudden I didn't have any pain or it didn't I had to go through a lot um, I had to go through a lot with all of this and it was hurtful it just seeing the delusion you know recognizing there's some kind of psychological or mental disability in fact. Um, It didn't result in instant happiness or even permanent relief. I mean, it actually began a process of an effort to recognize what the symptoms were and to seek solutions in my life. And we did a a presentation on emotional sobriety that actually is, I think, five or six of them that are available on our YouTube channel that really talks a lot about some of those processes. I actually, had a lot of help from the people around me, from therapists. Um, and one of the things I hear in the rooms that I really don't like, and I'm talking mostly in mainstream rooms, not secular, is, you know, you think too much, don't analyze. But I really needed to go back and take a look at a lot of the beliefs. And I mean, the the, the, the religious beliefs that I carried around. I needed to study some of the underlying ideas that my religious journey had implanted in my brain. And one of the guys who really helped me with that is a guy named Bart Ehrman, who has written a lot about early days of Christianity, about misquoting Jesus, a whole lot of things that really helped me because I got to see how long a lot of my ideas were. But it was very painful. Was not an easy thing. People who are going through this kind of transformation from sort of religious trauma, I would consider it a religious trauma that I went through. And once you get past the idea that something is going to magically happen, if you can just turn it over and everything will be warm and wonderful. A lot of pain involved. It was for me, anyway. Um, It didn't mean that I was doing something wrong, by the way, that pain really didn't mean I was doing something wrong. Actually, what it meant was I was doing something right. was something my sponsor used to point out to me that just because I'm in pain or just because I'm having emotion doesn't mean I'm doing something wrong, which in my religious training, it meant exactly that. You know, if you've got a problem, then you're the problem. So I really have a deep empathy for people who are trying to come out of uh, religious trauma syndrome, um, which is an identifiable syndrome, because it's so painful, it's so difficult. And I don't think that bad-mouthing religions or talking how people shouldn't believe that and how stupid it is, or any of those kinds of arguments are helpful at all for people like me. In fact, it probably reinforced some of my resistance a lot of time. So when I came out as an uh, agnostic and, uh, and non-theist, that is, I don't believe in the God, you know, all the higher power beyond our life, our mitakuya oyasana, we Lakota, that is, all, uh, all our relations were all related. When I came out of that, it was very, very difficult. I was probably about 20 years sober when I started telling people I didn't believe in God. That is, that idea of an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent being that's separate and outside of the natural world, all those metaphysical that, Um I got a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of rolled eyes and people walking out of the rooms and all that kind of stuff. But it was probably, I think it was... I was about 33 years sober when we started the Freethinkers Living Sober group, so about seven years ago, and um, I'm really glad we did. And what we decided to call it Freethinkers Living Sober because we wanted to be inclusive. We have a lot of people who are members of our group that are, quote-unquote, believers. And the one thing that we like to make sure is that people feel feel included that's the one thing that was really problematic in a lot of the mainstream meetings that i used to go to is as an atheist or an agnostic or a free thinker or a non-theist i a lot of times i felt really excluded not part of and people would let me know that i probably wouldn't stay sober if i didn't blah 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 so we didn't want to do that and it's a it's a great little group you're all invited (laughs) to show up anyway i have talked plainly long enough. My throat's about ready to give out anyway. So I would like to open this up to uh, anybody who, who wants to share. I guess we should probably do raised hands because there's a lot of people in here. Joe, do you want to take charge of that? Or you want me to? I,
0: carry on, you're doing beautifully.
1: <laughs> okay, well, thanks. I always appreciate the support. <clears throat> I wish I had a better throat for it. But... So I guess that's what we'll do. Use the raised hand function um, if you want to. And please do share your experience, or well, I don't mind hearing people let me know that I'm an idiot and I probably shouldn't believe the way I do it. That's just really impact my life.
2: Hi, John. Uh, Ken, Kenji here. A couple of people are asking in chat if um, if the slide deck, that your PowerPoint presentation, will be available to them.
1: Um, yeah, actually. Uh, A lot of these slides, and I think even more of these slides are available on our uh, YouTube channel, on our website. Let me just post this here. And so are all those uh, emotional sobriety workshops that we did. I think they're really good. Um, And we also, of course, do the varieties of secular experience, navigating AA in a secular way. Those are also on the YouTube channel and the link is right there. So does that answer it sufficiently? I hope. Do we have anybody else who'd like to come in? And I'm sure there's gotta be some people in here who've got some experience with spiritual bypassing. Yeah, Tim, good to see you, buddy.
3: Hey, John, thank you for this presentation. Uh, I had uh, listened to it previously when I went to the Emotional sobriety workshop. And I was confused, man. I may still be a little bit confused too, but the part I don't I think I see the reality that many people do basically use spirituality or religion or or meditation or this or that or a zillion different things. You know, there's maybe you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't think you're saying that all the people that are embracing religion or some other particular thing are necessarily spiritually bypassing, but I can kind of see the degree to which maybe some of us do. And I can see that maybe in myself sometimes. I recently read the book, um, Immortality, uh, that the guy wrote that tries to make this case for uh, humankind for, you know, thousands of years, maybe having them you know, drugs and psychedelics and things and you know, tries to make a case that, you know, maybe that was even some of the start of the Eucharist and, and, and the Christian religion. I mean, what do you think about this recent trend towards uh, the medical community beginning to slowly embrace these more experimental approaches with psychedelics, with and uh, and and then the Veterans Administration also using um, you know, ecstasy and some other drugs to try to deal with PTSD. Or do you think they're maybe just going down a spiritual bypassing path? Or do you think there's maybe a reality to some of this transformative experience that people report from some of those things uh, that maybe has some deeper depth that is beyond spiritual bypassing?
1: Good question. Um, actually I spent quite a bit of time, um, researching some of these methods and I, I'm very encouraged by them. Personally, I'm not going to be taking psychedelics again. I did a lot of it. I remember my crow dog, when he, he, I'm a sun dancer, I don't usually talk about it, but, um, he wanted me to get involved with, um, the native American church, which uses peyote in the ceremony. and I told them I use that stuff recreationally. I don't think I'm going to go there. And I feel the same way about psychedelic. However, I can certainly see how in a therapeutic setting, they could be quite useful. And a lot of people have had success with them. I don't know how long they're going to be, how how well they'll work longitudinally um, without some support system like AA or Life ring or you know one of the other... Systems of community because I think connection is so so very important. But I'm actually pretty encouraged by some of the research that's being done. And I'm, you know, it's so unfortunate that the U.S. government decided to make them uh, illegal and ban everything. Quite a threat I guess. I hope that answers your question, Erica.
4: Um, So I I just needed to chime in here. I was actually in one of those uh, psychedelic experiments for cancer-related depression. I was in the second one that ever happened in the modern era. And I have a lot to say about it, but this isn't the right place. And um, in a different kind of setting, I would be happy to share. I think John, just now, if I can say so, has made actually two very salient points that have shown to be true. And I'm also writing a book about it. Um, There's um, number one, it's very, very valuable. Number two, the one thing that um, a couple of people had intuited but then was also being borne out was that you cannot send people out from sessions that are supposed to be therapeutic into no support. That just doesn't work. Um, and so that's very, very much part of this. And as different experiments are happening, they're realizing more and more that for certain conditions it's essential and it's they need more than two and a phone call. That that I mean, in other words, more than two support consultations. So that's turning into a very big thing. So that that's absolutely essential to know. In some way, at some point, I'm willing to entertain having this conversation in a constructive way. But like I said, it's not the place, but I just wanted to let you know that that it does exist. And there's also a great deal of activity uh, going on in government to make sure that this is going to go forward in the proper way. And so the whole legalization, medicalization thing is being very heavily examined and worked on by some very dedicated people in government. So it's not being dismissed. So thank you.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. I don't know if people are gonna be upset by this non-AA reference, but there is a there's a group that is involved in this um, at maps.org if you're interested in finding out a little bit more. And and there's a lot of research being done, especially from um, neuroscience, and et cetera. I'm looking for hands. Ian, go ahead. Thank you.
5: Hi, thanks, John. Uh, yeah, uh, thanks everyone for for making this possible, and uh, it was really interesting uh, listening to you, John. Um, you know the the uh, the whole concept of spirituality. I, I, it doesn't rub me up the wrong way. I look at it as you know spirituality and practicality. You know, it's 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 the same thing for me. I just had to go away for a second, but then when people were talking about uh psychedelics and things like that, I think yeah the emphasis on the on the proper way the proper way you know like like with, with actual support um I'm all for that um however, I was seven years sober and then um decided uh. About a year and a half ago, to experiment with a little bit of um, micro dosing myself, you know um, with with some psychedelics, the micro soon became macro <laughs> and, uh, there you have it, you know, and um, I kind of know why I wanted to take it, you know um, it was because I hadn't been connecting with people um and i hadn't been sharing openly and honestly yeah that 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 old feeling of emptiness came back in so i guess it's like you know for me anyway it's if if it's a substance it's like am am i taking it to 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 change the way i feel am i taking it recreationally you know it's like the questions i've got to ask myself you know um but uh I don't know if that makes sense to anyone. It's just like the there's a lot of little documentaries about microdosing, and from my experience, just don't fucking do it. <laughs> I'll leave it there, dudes. Thanks.
1: Thanks, Ian. You know, you bring up some really excellent points. For me, um, what sobriety has become for me is about. I, I think Joe one time used a, some pages from um, Velveteen Rabbit. You know, becoming authentic. That, to me, is what sobriety is really about. It's not about reaching some mountaintop. It's not about becoming some enlightened being, whatever the hell that means. Um, And when I can stick with my feet on the ground and talk about where I am and what's going on, I'm in much better shape. Um, I tend to be a little bit on the intellectual side. <laughs> happens to people who do PhDs. <laughs> I guess it happens to a lot of people really, regardless. But um, but I think that's really true. And that's why I stay away from them. Because it was part of my search to try and be other than who I am. One of the things I got out of treatment is human is probably about as high as I'm going to get. If we got anybody else who wants to talk, good. Angie.
2: Hi, everyone. Kenji, addict, alcoholic, human in recovery here in Northern California. Uh, Thanks, John. That was really interesting. I actually looked up, um, I actually Googled spiritual bypassing last night to find out what it was. What I saw on a quick glance was I thought, oh my goodness, this is going to be about Uh, mainstream AA bashing, and um, which seemed unlikely to me because I've heard enough of your present, you know, your panels and presentations in Cottonwood, to know that that's, you're not like that, but I was very curious to see um, how this would go. And of course, you're much more thoughtful than that, and generous of spirit, And that to me is what spirit means to me. I mean, it's, um, um, the the connection and the, the positivity and support and generosity that I find in these rooms especially. and, and I found it in mainstream rooms too um, mingled amongst all the dogma and the such and such is true and the proof of it is because it says so on page this and that in the big book or the 12 and 12. that always so I, I grew up in a totally non-religious household. I'm nominally Jewish, meaning I'm Jewish by bloodline. And we observe something like, for instance, we ate latkes on Passover, and stuff like that. Um, but it had no religious connotation whatsoever, never went to synagogue ever. Um, I probably been in a synagogue once or twice in my life. But it was for you know, it. and I've been in a church a few times in my life. But it was not really for observance. Um, during my my bad period after I relapsed from after nine years of sobriety, I relapsed and ended up three years later homeless because once I started, I couldn't stop. And I definitely darkened the doorway of a few churches to try to take a nap on a pew in the back. There's a church in in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco, St. Boniface, where um they let homeless people basically nap in the pews in the back and they actually have security people there to if people are tr- try to lay down towards the front of the church during services, they, they tell them to go to the back. And so you have a lot of mostly Filipinos praying in the front and standing up and sitting down um, during the, the weird times that they seem to do that in Catholic services and all, all this snoring going on in the back. It's um, quite an interesting scene. Anyway, um, I grew up with no with none of that in that imprinting that you talked about. So I didn't have that to get over. So for me, the struggle was the religious, the quasi religious part of AA never just made any sense. And I kind of learned to talk the talk, and to sort of act as if and pretend, but it, it just never really registered. And I really worried, what if they're right? And if the, you know, no human power can, you know, can be can save me in the end, and I'm, and I'm doomed. Um, and it was such a relief when I came to secular AA in the last, over the last year or so, to discover that there's plenty of people with 20, 30, 40, 50, I see Arlene is in the room, you know, it's, you know, crazy amounts of sobriety, and they seem to have great sobriety. it's not a bunch of angry angry atheists gritting their teeth and with white knuckles it's very different than that and what a relief thanks
1: thank you yeah i see there's a a question in the the chat i learned that i'm i'm a very kinky fluid person (laughs) you don't fit a lot of the molds that you're supposed to fit in you mentioned exploring sexuality as part of finding yourself i haven't heard this discussed before i'm wondering if you could share a bit about what you learned about yourself. Well, that's, that's kind of what I learned about myself uh, in a nutshell. It's really beyond the scope of what this discussion is, except that I did use that as a, a way to try and get rid of myself. It doesn't get talked about in AA very much at all anywhere, sexuality. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I used to go to what we used to call gay and lesbian meetings. Now they're uh, LGBTQ plus meetings because I could talk about stuff,
0: and uh, that I couldn't talk in mainstream meetings. Uh, Tracy, hello, Tracy, alcoholic. Thank you for your presentation, and thank you for that last question that someone posted in the chat. Uh, I was going to mention that too because I'm—I've been on that same journey, and uh, it's not talked about in AA a lot. <clears throat> and I know it's not the scope of this this talk, so I won't go on about it. But um, also, when you talked about being, you know, quite a few years sober, I think you said 20 or so uh, before you came, became, you know, agnostic or you started to explore or back away from religion. I know for me, it was a back, a slow back in the way of from religion and religious, uh, you know, thoughts or ideals and a lot of fear involved. You know, because I'm like, I'm going to wait and see if the lightning bolt hits me. I'm just going to think this thing, you know, (laughs) and, and uh, nothing happened, you know, and then I'd move a little further and move a little further and and, uh, nothing happened, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay, maybe a lot of this stuff is bullshit, you know, and, uh, and nothing's going to happen to me if I think my own thoughts or have my own beliefs and, you know. And I was lucky enough to find some agnostic groups. And I personally don't go to any um, traditional, air quotes, traditional AA meetings, but uh, um, but that's you know, if I found one or two, you know, if a friend of mine had a lead at a traditional AA meeting who's in in our agnostic group, and and uh, there was a little pushback there when he, you know, he told his truth. And uh, I went to support him and I stood up and I made my comment and said, you know what? I don't need a deity to stay sober. I've been sober 30 years now. And, uh, you know, that's, the, that's our story. So, but I, I really appreciate it. And I, I'm glad you uh, put the link up for the, the slides. Uh, I really like that. And uh, I've seen you around the rooms and, and in the Zoomiverse. And I'd, I'd like to talk, chat with you sometimes if possible um and i'll uh, i'll stop there i am i gotta head over to my home group and uh we'll be bouncing around zoom today i'm sure i'll see you somewhere
1: thanks tracy i appreciate it thank yeah, you I, I probably started the process of of um agnostic ways uh, at, by the time i was seven or eight years sober uh really got more into more of a buddhist approach but I didn't start talking about not believing in God until I was about 20 years sober. Primarily, I still go to, main I call them mainstream meetings because to me, traditional meetings are more like secular. When I got sober 40 years ago I, in Southern California, it wasn't a big deal uh, like it is now. I do still go to mainstream meetings and I still will bring up the fact that I am not a believer, uh, mostly because most of the people that came to to our group, when we first started, were from mainstream meetings that um, had buku years of sobriety, many of them uh, sober as long or longer than I. So I keep going to those meetings, slugging away, and I'm still involved in district and area and all of that.
6: Um, Kyle. Good morning. Um, my name is Kyle. I'm an alcoholic in Austin, Texas. John, great presentation. Uh, so great to see you and uh, to hear you. Um, I've heard several people mention this idea of, you know, the quote unquote traditional meeting being more similar to what we're doing in, in secular rooms today, uh, particularly people who have been in AA for many years like you have uh, and i've heard several people talk about 30 40 years ago a quote unquote traditional meeting was a lot more similar to a uh, to a secular meeting and that it was not a big deal that the the emphasis on god and 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 the religiosity was not there and i just wonder what you think happened <laughs> how did it how did we get to where we are now, with this big kind of a delineation between secular and um, non-secular, like did the country become more religious? Did the, did the world become more religious, or what happened?
1: Yeah, I think there's been a big shift in this culture um, over the last couple of decades, and I blame Texas. Um, <laughs> actually, I did my I did my doctoral work at ut austin so i actually really like uh, uh, austin a lot but yeah i think there has been a, a very profound cultural shift it's really unfortunate although there have been places in aa over in the country for years if you look at some of the history of aa and the differences between for instance akron and new york in the early days akron was much more on the religious side Whereas New York was much less and to the chagrin of the Akronites. So it's, it's been there. That has been there uh, from the beginning. You know, from Jim and, and, and Hank P and uh, those folks trying to get Bill to write a more psychological and less religious book um, till today. I think we're about ready to close this thing up. Joe, do you want to take the helm? And
0: Uh, first thing I'd like to do is invite everyone to unmute and properly thank John for uh, kicking off uh, ICSA
5: 2021. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, you.
2: Thank you, John. Thank,
5: you, Thank you, John. Thank you, John, good you. to see you. All right. Thank you, John.